Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. I'm Jira Taylor. Today I talk to Advait Shind, the co-founder of GoGuardian, an education technology startup that is kicking ass over in California. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Created for those committed to mastery and success. Coming to you from Manly, Australia, we break down the science and philosophy of optimal performance so you can unleash your potential. Welcome to the show, Advait. Um, glad to have you here. Thanks, Jiro. I'm uh, really excited. Cool, man. So, yeah, today I'm really stoked to have you on. We're going to dive into a bit of exploring about your life, your journey, how you got to where you are. And your views on performance, flow, passion, purpose, all of those kind of things. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds fantastic. Cool, man. So just for the audience, just explain a little bit about who you are and what you do. Right now, I'm running this company that I co-founded called GoGuardian. I run the engineering team. And yeah, we're basically involved in, in like the this, this really interesting space, which never really existed before, but it, it's basically like... The internet usage analytics space as it applies to students. So these days, students are actually using a lot of technology in, in the classroom to learn, do research on, etc. And teachers and, and school administrators are interested in, in understanding how students are actually using the devices that the, the schools provide. So GoGuardian essentially provides that information. And I'm running that team. And... Yeah, let's see. Before that, I was a, a software engineer at, at Google up in San Francisco on the, the Google Wallet team. Before that, I was a computer science major at, at UCLA. Yeah, I guess I uh, have always been a nerd growing up and, and I, I love computers. And yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. Were you one of those guys that was writing code when you were like eight years old? Yeah, 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 definitely. My <laughs> my dad handed me this book, and he, we've always had computers uh, growing up. And yeah, I, I I just started to to play with it, and it was yeah. The rest is history. So, what were you doing when you were a kid? Because I was playing Mario Kart and Super Mario on a Nintendo, the first Nintendo mm-hmm. I remember, and then a Super Nintendo. But what were you doing on a computer? Right on. My uh, dad had this really old. 486 and it had like ms dos on it and i remember have these these vivid recollections of being like in like kindergarten or first grade and asking my mom what commands do i need to type to play this game called load runner and i had no idea what i was doing but like i would type in like the actual commands on dos and and hit enter and when i got to play the game it was like the best reward ever and (laughs) yeah that's awesome man so Wow, so you've been messing around on computers for a long time. It's been a while, yeah. Yeah. What were you doing during your teenage years on computers? Were you actually doing more practical type stuff? Were you building stuff? Or were you a game player? What did you do? I kind of just loved programming for programming's sake. I don't know. It was just really, really cool to be able to type stuff in and, and be able to control a machine and have it do stuff. And I guess like throughout middle school and high school, I didn't really understand like the actual possibilities of what could be done until I actually started doing stuff with HTML on, on the web. And then uh, it got to a point where I was able to, to publish my own websites and, and just being able to see 
that content online and, and being able to tell my friends like, Hey man, go to this website. This is really cool. That kind of just, just blew my mind. And, and so in high school, I did a little bit of like freelance web development and yeah. Wow. So I guess that's an interesting point because I guess for, for many people, m- myself included, it's like someone who's, I've never coded and mm-hmm. I've always been fascinated by I guess what the appeal is, and, and I know that it's, a, it's an activity that they've done a lot of research into, people get into these deep flow states when they're coding, and mm-hmm. I guess it's a kind of like, it's, it's like building, it's creation, it's, there's a sense of artistry to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I've always been like a math guy and like a puzzle guy, and oftentimes I, I view programming as very similar to like solving puzzles. Like you have this input, you need this output, and you have like these rules and essentially like playing a game to get to the desired outcome. And it's it's very much in line with the whole whole puzzle thing. So. Is, is it like learning a new language? Like say if you're a, a, a Java guy or a C++ guy or an HTML guy, mm-hmm. are these like all completely different languages? Not at all. The fundamental constructs of, of programming are, are pretty much universal. Just like in ordinary languages, like human languages, we, we have like nouns and verbs and in programming languages, you have like operations and expressions and functions and variables. And those are basically universal. So as long as you understand that, it's basically you're solving problems, really. Yeah. Interesting, man. Okay. So you're basically at this stage, you're what, 24 years old? 25. 25 years old. And you're the CTO of a startup called GoGuardian, who is... I guess a, a rising star in the education technology space in the right. in the states. Okay, you did your computer science degree at Stanford. Oh, sorry, at UCLA. Uh, UCLA. You <laughs> got hired by Google, and now you're the CTO of a startup. It's kind of like a, a classical career curve so far for like these high achieving super geeks. <laughs> it sounds nice when you say it that way, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about Google. You know, I guess for, for me. I've watched that movie. What was it? Interns or something. Um, the, the internship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I read articles here and there. And I have a sense of what it's like there from an outsider's point of view. Mm-hmm. What was it like to work there? It was absolutely fantastic. Almost everybody told me that because it was my first job out of college, that it's completely ruined my expectations for what real life is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it, it was phenomenal. Just Just being in a place where you're surrounded by people that are insanely smart, solving problems that are basically like unprecedented in, in computing history. And not only just solving them from like a theoretical perspective, but actually putting them into application and, and changing like real people's lives. That's basically like what Google was. Mm. And it, it was amazing. When did you decide that you wanted to work there? You know, it kind of just happened on a whim. I knew, like when I was in college, I obviously knew of Google and and, like the engineering culture and it was a great place to work. And and I just like randomly applied for an internship and I got an interview and I did well in the interview and and I got an offer and and it it just kind of happened. I I didn't really consciously make the decision. Yeah. And what was the interview process like? It was pretty hard. So it's, it's much easier as an intern. But yeah, like two phone interviews for an, an hour long each, as well as a, an in-person interview. Yeah, lots of like really challenging algorithmic problems and just like problems that are not really related to com- computers either, just to test how you actually think. It was fun. I, I enjoyed the interviews. Really? So, so what, like general logic and reason, problem yeah. solving type things? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And what about a personality assessment? Was there much of that? Let's just see if this guy is a good guy. Maybe not explicitly. I'm sure just by having a, a conversation with somebody for an hour, you can kind of get to know how they talk and how they react. But no, no real personality tests. Yeah. Tell me about the culture that at Google and, and how you think they created it. So obviously there's this culture of excellence over there. It yeah. seems to me like it's a pioneering type place. Like everybody Absolutely. knows that they're doing awesome stuff at the forefront, the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. How, does, how um, does that culture manifest itself? Yeah, I think the co-founders, Larry and Sergey and Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO for some time, basically made a really conscious decision very, very early on to hire, I think, what they've termed smart creatives. So these are people who are just insanely smart, but not just like book smart. They're also creatives and they can turn like uh, theoretical concepts and, and turn them into actual application uh, think outside of the box and, and really do incredible things. And they basically said that everybody in this company, no matter what their role is, needs to be top tier, like the absolute best, like from the beginning. And when you get somebody who's in the top like 0.01% at your company early on, basically the impact that they have over time is just compounded. And when you get a ton of these people, it, it clearly shows in, in Google's trajectory and, and what they've done. So that, just that the, the bar has been high. Sounds like they're just building excellence upon excellence upon excellence. Right. And it's just like this, yeah. this snowball effect. Wow. Yeah. So what about the kind of training and mentorship that you had over there? Yeah, it was kind of daunting. UCLA has like a very theoretical computer science program. So to go from like a computer science academic and be thrown into like a software engineering job where you're actually pushing out software and, and it's they're very different. And so I spent a lot of like the initial time just being hammered on, on these things called code reviews where you essentially submit a request for your code to be like a part of Google's code repository. And a senior engineer will look at it and will sit and will go line by line and say like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, you need to do this way. I think my first code review took like at least three weeks wow. to get like a hundred lines of code submitted. So, so, so pretty sort of upfront, this is what you're doing wrong kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, almost like boot camp, like where it's very scary. And especially if you've done stuff before, like you have the mentality that, hey, I can produce software and, and I can write code that works. And to go to a place where they're like, no, 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 you have no idea what you're doing. You need to do it properly. Mm. It's, yeah. Did you feel like your job was at risk? No, I felt like internally, uh, like I, I wasn't meeting expectations that I had a certain level of what my output should have been. I mean, I wasn't meeting that internally, but they say at Google, when you join there, you should expect to take about three months to feel productive. And if any time between those three months, you feel sad that that you're not contributing, you should just know that that on average, it takes three months for most people to to feel productive. Really? So So they should have prepared you for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. And what kind of interaction or, or how visible were the two, were Sergey and Bryn, like, did you see them a lot? Sorry, Larry, what's the names again? Larry and... Larry Page, Sergey Bryn. Yeah. Yeah. Were they visible? Yeah, so Google does this fantastic thing called TGIF, where uh, it's it's like a company-wide meeting that happens every Friday. It actually happens every Thursday now, for some crazy reasons. And 
it's a two-part thing where the the first first half of it will be a, a demo from some team at Google that launched something new or has some crazy ideas. The end of it is basically like a, a Q&A with the executive team, including Larry and Sergey. And it's basically really blunt questions from employees that are just really, really hard hitting. And, and in an ordinary company, like people would expect to get fired by asking the sorts of things that, that get asked, like questioning fundamental strategy and, and calling out like actual leaders for their past actions. But it, it's brilliant because like uh, nothing is off the table and it kind of increases accountability from an executive perspective. And, and it also gives the leaders a chance to, to really be leaders and show to the entire company that, that hey, the stuff that they're talking is, is not like actual nonsense. They, they fundamentally believe it. So wow. it, was, it was pretty, pretty inspiring. Wow. So they really just put themselves out there. Absolutely. Like fully out there. <laughs> wow. They're not hiding behind the, in their corner office on the top floor Definitely of a not. skyscraper. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's inspiring. Wow. So it seems to me when I think about it, like Google is really representative of this kind of massive shift that we've had in our culture in that probably throughout time, right up until the 80s and possibly some of the 90s, it was all about the dominant guys in corporations were probably the brash jock types, you know, the sporty guys, the guys Mm -hmm. that could sell stuff, the guys that hustled, the guys that could use the force of their personality to persuade and all that kind of thing. And now, what Google represents, in my mind, is almost like the revenge of the nerds. You've got like, yeah. super smart engineers, and this is their time, this is their place, and they're really like the driving force behind the biggest, most successful, valuable companies on earth. Yeah. I think an interesting assessment there is that you could kind of segment it as old world and new world. And in the old world, you have these organizations, which are basically just people organizations, And not to say that any organization will ever escape the people constraints, but with computers and with the internet, we've really reached a point where like an individual contribute and and make like impactful contributions to the actual business just with code. And that kind of flips the model on its head where before it was like the loudest, most aggressive person that was actually getting things done in the form of people moving. And now it's like the the most intelligent and, and capable person that's that's actually getting things done through code and software so i I think that shift is pretty representative wow that's interesting i'm just fascinated by this culture of excellence that they've Mm -hmm. created at google it and i'm really fascinated with how they continue to push it because they just keep on going right and it's really that culture of just continual growth so what? So obviously, so the founders are very instrumental. The culture is coming from them. They make sure that they hire the best of the best of the best. Mm-hmm. What else do they do internally that creates this culture? Because it seems like kind of like people love working there. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's free food and massages and lots of beer. <laughs> and I think that whenever you bring a guest there, everybody's comment is, how do people actually get work done here? Like, this is just absurd. And the funny part is, I think that if you actually look look deeply, the people that are buzzing around are, like, the these amenities are all so superficial. Like, the people are there because of a greater reason. And it's, like, really this hive of, of just, like, super smart people working on really difficult, on, like, 
unprecedented problems. And that's the thing that's really keeping these people there. And all the, the crazy stuff uh, is just icing on the cake, I think. Mm, that's interesting. It's the absorption in, in the complexity of the problems that keep people there. So they obviously yeah. hire people that just thrive on that kind of complexity. Right. That's really interesting. Did you ever have that voice of doubt where you're just like, wow, I just don't know if I can cut it in this environment? Or did you always feel you, you weren't your, your spot? No. So there's this thing called imposter syndrome. And I'm not sure if, if you've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, I have. But the, yeah, the, the, the general concept is that you're surrounded by a group of people and their excellence forces you into a state where you, you it's like self-doubt basically and you feel like you're an imposter and you don't belong in this community of like hyper intelligent people and that's like a big thing at google like there's like an internal community of like who feel they're subject to imposter syndrome and like it's hard because like you look around you and there's people walking around you who have like fundamentally changed the trajectory of computer science <laughs> wow <laughs> and like that, that dude in that room over there like did that and you're supposed to live up to similar expectations or at least at a superficial level wow is there a kind it's, of like a a recognition of these superstars like are there kind of like internally famous people who everybody just knows that guy is kick-ass amazing at what he does yeah so so you know how we have like uh, chuck norris jokes yeah there's this guy named jeff dean and there's like actual Jeff Dean jokes. Um, I, I can't remember any offhand, but they're just like ab absurd, like computer science related things. Yeah. So the idea being like he can just do absolutely anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So what did you recognize? So you were surrounded by high achievers, really smart people. What were the common things that you recognized, if anything, in what these people did to, to stay at the top of their game? Yeah, that's a good question. Because so when I, when I think about engineers, this is maybe a stereotype, but they're generally perceived stereotypically as being sort of like, kind of like, not guys that dedicate themselves to training and peak performance. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I would even argue that this the stereotypical engineer, their steady state or like default state of mind is one that is problem solving. Like I'm speaking for myself in that sense, like... I just love problem solving. That's a pretty fundamental core trait. And I think that if you get the best problem solvers that default to a problem solving state and put them in a room together and allow them to bounce ideas off each other, you basically get what Google has. So there's two aspects. There's the one, the, the, the fundamental trait of problem solving, and two, like the ability to get a group of these like really smart people and enable them to kind of thrive together. That's really interesting. So how do you go from individual excellence and individual problem-solving ability to some sort of group cohesion? I think that the way Google did it is, let's just take every distraction, anything that a person could possibly worry about and, and distract them from their goals and, and remove those distractions. So that immediately lends itself to meals. Like, don't have this person think about, about food. Put them in like the nicest environment where they're always happy and allow them like the tools and the infrastructure to test out new ideas. For example, like every engineer at Google basically has access to run things on Google's data centers. So if you have this interesting idea of, of what you want to do, you could just go try it. And so I, I guess the, the general principle is that 
you remove every obstacle possible and just allow these people to do the best that they can, like be their default state. That's fascinating because when I think about, I, I do a lot of coaching with people around flow states, how to achieve flow in their life. And when you actually break it down, it's almost like flow is the default state. Yeah. But we happen to have so many obstacles in our life that prevent us from flowing. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so the simple equation is remove the obstacles and you will flow. And yeah. It seems to me like Google cracked that code. I think so. Especially with the engineer type who's, yeah, I would agree that their default state is, is flow. Like mm. if I'm not worrying about something, then I immediately default to solving a problem. And you get a group of these people together and yeah. you get Google. In a formal sense, how did collective decision making take place? So say there was a complex problem. Yeah. Was it like, okay, guys, let's have a brainstorming session or let's go to this room where we go and like, like hammer it out. Like, what was the deal? Yeah, basically like, I mean, there's varying level of expertise across like a, a single engineering team and there's significant differences in seniority. Uh, like when I was there, I was pretty junior I and mean, I spent a lot of time just like really absorbing. So I think the, the general direction of what technology problems like the team is going to be solving and how they're going to be solving them is set by the more senior people. That's not to say that, that everybody can't contribute. Like if you have a good idea and, and a good way to get it done, then your voice will be heard. But yeah. 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 I think that's so important. What I'm hearing is like there's, there is sort of like a, a hierarchy, but it's a very soft kind of hierarchy. There's, there's meritocracy. Like if, you've got a, if you're a smart junior and you've got a great idea, then your voice will be heard, which is so, so different from the old school way that companies have been run. Isn't that right? Yeah. Where it's like how old you are, how long you've been around. Yeah, that's right. How many gray hairs you've got. Yeah. Right. Interesting. A whole new paradigm. It seems that Google are, are sort of driving. So, but ultimately you left Google, right? I'm just imagining yeah. like that conversation you had with your mom and dad when you were like, <laughs> I'm quitting the best company in the universe where yeah. I'm doing really, really well. How did that go down? Mm -hmm. I mean, so obviously they were supportive. They weren't going to really go against me on that one. Yeah. They were the first people to, to be worried, like making a, a high risk move where you basically have everything made. Like you could just chill at Google for, for decades and, and financially be very, very well, uh, intellectually be equally satisfied. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just had this fundamental craving for wanting more, which I, I just couldn't get out of Google. And I think they were very privy to that. And uh as soon as they, they knew that that was the reason why, I mean, they were always supportive. What do you mean a craving for more? In, in, in what sense? So I felt like I could solve bigger problems. Like, yeah, at, at Google, like if you have uh, an opinion about something, there's, there's ways in which you can have your opinion be heard and, and make that happen. But it's just really a function of people like as soon as you involve a, a large group of people just the friction of communication and the inability of, of to instantly change somebody's mind about something basically lends it to like it's itself to the system where it takes more and more effort to to push ideas through and then also the the system doesn't default to giving hard problems to people that haven't proven themselves yet and maybe this was like a, a selfish or, or presumptuous conclusion that I made, but I, I just wanted to do more. And I wanted to do more than just contribute on the engineering side. Like uh, I had thoughts about like marketing or sales or risk models. 
And it's very hard for a software engineer at Google to, to be able to contribute to like a marketing initiative, for better or for worse. Yeah, interesting. So tell me what happened. How did it play out? How did this opportunity to join a startup come about? So a buddy of mine from college, his name is Aza, he and I had been in touch throughout college. We were the kids who were like building all sorts of cool projects, websites and tools for other people to use. That's how we like knew each other. He just reached out to me and actually when I was in college, when I was about to graduate and, and go to Google initially, he reached out to me and, and basically said that, uh, hey, I have this idea with schools and, and Chromebooks and I have like 3,000 users or something like that. And I really need a technical co-founder. And I had this like Google offer sign. And I was like, no, nah, man, I'm, I'm going to go to Google. Like you do your thing. And two years later, I get the same phone call and he's like, yeah. So, so remember that thing I told you about two years ago, uh, I started to work on it again. And now I have 30,000 people. Do you want to come down and, and check it out? And so I flew down and I met Aza and, and he showed me some of the things that were happening. And it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to have a bigger impact and contribute to more than, than just engineering. And, and so I, I just jumped at it. Wow, man. So it's a big risk. It's a big decision at a young age to make, isn't it? It's a really, it's a really ballsy move. Yeah, I mean, I so I didn't approach it emotionally at all. And the conclusion I made, I was just really satisfied with. Basically, the the ultimate downside is that I spent some time here, which has opportunity costs, sure, but eventually the idea would fail. And, and I would, given like the demand for software engineers out there now, I would just move back up to the Bay and, and find a job relatively quickly. So yeah. I think the, the only downside was just time lost. Yeah. And given that I, I wasn't fulfilling my intellectual capacity at Google, I figured that I, I would be able to do better in, in a startup environment. So that would essentially be an upgrade. So there was really no downside for me. Yeah, that's, that's a way that I, a method that I use to make decisions is just to get very familiar and think a lot about the, the, the worst case scenario, not in a negative way. Right. Just almost like normalize it. Just be like, all right, no problem. You know, and once yeah. you get comfortable with that, then yeah, it just the whole decision making process just changes fundamentally. You can begin to, to make the decision based on its merits rather than some sense of perceived risk which you haven't fully conceptualized. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's it's hard because you always have people like yelling in your ear like, Oh my gosh, you're leaving Google. That's a, such a what a terrible mistake. So I think you have to essentially drown out the naysayers and, and just think about it logically. As a programmer, what would you do? Yeah, okay. So you put your programming head on, did you? That's Absolutely. interesting. So it's been, we've spoken about this at length, but the, the rise of GoGuardian has been a pretty damn steep. Everything's happening very fast, right? Yep, Just paint, paint the picture for me what has happened in the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah, I think we incorporated in, in May 2014. It's September 2015 now. And we've basically grown 25% compounded like month over month from the beginning. And I think it's just a function of having the perfect product for that solves this pain point that people didn't know existed. Before this era, again, there were students were not carrying around laptops, students were carrying around textbooks. And so this is a, a new thing that's happening. And I think we're solving a, a new problem. And the growth is, is basically a, a validation that there's like a legitimate 
need here and and we're filling that wow so 25 percent compounded growth month after month in your first year of business that's yeah that's just phenomenal and, and what about your staff size so obviously when you started it was two or three of you where are you at mm-hmm. now i think we're about 40 ish i lose track people come in all the time and yes. and it's amazing because i remember back in the day when it was just me Aza, and, and a few other folks in in like an apartment it's only a and, year ago uh, bro yeah <laughs> wow yeah. what a crazy year you've had and I know that you guys have signed up or thinking about signing up to this new office space, which has space for 100. Yeah, um, I think that's the plan. We want to grow uh, up, up and away. And so we're, we're trying to figure out what the appropriate space is going to be. Amazing. Let's talk about education, because obviously that this company is in, involved in the education space. And obviously, we're living in a very interesting time in history where mm-hmm. there's the old and the new. There's... For yep. hundreds of years, kids have been learning from textbooks. Kids have been looking at blackboards or whiteboards, and kids have been sort of almost like rote learning and preparing for examinations. And we're sort of in this blend because a lot of that stuff is still happening. And I think all around, you know, many places around the world, that is just the norm, right? But what we're seeing now, and, and potentially you're at the cutting edge of it, I'm not sure, but you're in California, you're dealing, a lot of your clients are, are in the Californian school system. And mm-hmm. What you're seeing is that there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of students who are predominantly using Google Chromebooks for their education. Is that the case? Yeah, that's the case. So, yeah, surprisingly, these things are actually big in education. Like, it's the de facto tool used in schools nowadays. When you think about Chromebooks, you don't really think about them as, like, a a consumer product in in the same way you would think about, like, uh, an iPad or any of Apple's products, for that matter. But for this particular market segment, like schools, Chromebooks are by far the biggest device. So they're really taking the country by storm. Is that what Google had in mind for them? I don't know. I think when they initially created this whole concept of of Chrome OS and Chromebooks, they definitely didn't think education necessarily was like the the ideal market segment. I think they they wanted it to be a a universal device. Obviously, I, I don't know. But... It's taken off, so uh, I don't think they're complaining. So a Chromebook, forgive my ignorance, but it's, it's, it's just something that you browse on, or it's just something that has web capabilities, but you don't put software on it? Yeah, I think that's a, a good assessment. It's basically like your Chrome browser, and that's it. And there's ways in which you could emulate like the traditional apps you and I are used to. But if you think about it, with things like Gmail and, and YouTube and online like web games... Like, think about the actual programs that you have installed and, and what do they do? Maybe only, like, real power users need, like, actual programs like AutoCAD or Photoshop mm. or, like, the Office Suite if you're really doing crazy stuff. But for the average user, like, everything is on the Internet. Yeah. And, and you just need a browser. And more and more so with the with the rise of the cloud. It's just that's the yeah. way it's going, right? So talk to me about your experience going through the American school system. So let's go right back to when you're in primary school. I, mm-hmm. I presume that there weren't many computers around and you were kind of learning from th- the way that I learned, like a teacher at the front of the room and a, and a whiteboard and a, you know, maybe 25 to 30 kids in a room all learning the same stuff the same way. Is that what it was for you? Yeah, basically, we had this like one period for like an hour a week where we would go to the computer lab and play games and, and do like typing stuff. And Oh, I bet little uh, Adelaide was in heaven for that, for that absolutely. period. Absolutely. <laughs> it, was, it was the best. It was like 
I do this at home for fun and I get to do this at school. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. And so it was really cool. But uh, to the counterpoint to that is is there was as much emphasis placed on, on learning computers and being proficient at computers as there was on the, the literal Dewey Decimal System. So it seems like silly considering where we're at. I don't think the Dewey Decimal System is, is at all relevant anymore. But yeah, unfortunately, it was the old school rote learning with a, with a whiteboard and textbooks. Yeah. And what about through high school? Like, how did you do? You obviously did well enough to get a place at UCLA, but how did you and the educational system mesh together? It was kind of like silly. School came really naturally to me. Everything was very easy. And at no point throughout like my entire K through 12 education did I ever feel really challenged which is sad in retrospect because if I could rewind it, like feeding me like a, a challenge at a, at a young age would have been probably really really cool and would have probably paid dividends but uh it's just a lost opportunity I think wow okay so at no stage like so you're saying that across the board whether you were studying like languages math computer science or some of the more sort of liberal art type things you didn't feel stretched at all i mean i definitely uh wasn't as good as like the the liberal arts english history sort of stuff biology was my my kryptonite just having to memorize like a bazillion things without really having them conceptually relate to each other in a non-trivial way was the most frustrating thing Whereas like math and, and especially like physics, everything just makes sense, just fits into this very complicated mental model. So, but I, I think all throughout it was not challenging. It's obviously, it's changing right now. When I tune in and when I observe kids, like my nephews, when I observe how proficient they are using these devices that the mm -hmm. Apple engineers have so ingeniously created, almost it seems like for children <laughs> to be able to use, yeah. it becomes apparent that it's going to, shit's changing, right? Kids are, yeah. kids are learning in, dif in a different way. You know, I can almost envisage a future where it's a very underground thing to do to read a book. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But it seems like just screens are becoming so entrenched in, in our society. How do you think kids are going to be learning like from five to 10 years old in the future? Yeah, I'm like really passionate about this stuff. And, and, and I'm excited for GoGuardian to actually take charge in, in this movement. But I think it's the silliest thing to have textbooks, these non-interactive, boring pieces of paper. If you think about, like, like you mentioned, these kids are, are using these iPads and watching videos and playing interactive games. Their bar for, for what mental stimulation, like the baseline mental stimulation is through the roof. And you ask them to, to look at a, a blank sheet of paper or a sheet with math problems on it that's non-interactive. It's not the right approach. And I think the pessimists will, will look at this as a failure of this new digital age and, and how it's, it's terrible and, and how this bar for, for stimulation is way too high. But I like to challenge and flip that on its head and basically say that I think that the, the screens are around forever. They're going to stay. And so we need to bring everything else up to par. I don't think that there's any reason that, that we can't make the educational experience as fun or if, even more fun than playing a game. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, it yeah. can be just as interactive. Yeah, it's really interesting to get your perspective on this stuff, and it's awesome that you're passionate about it, because a lot of the stuff that that I hear, and maybe, maybe this is a lot of the stuff that comes up 
in my own mind is almost has a negative energy, like a sense of regret that we're going to this age of the screen. But as you say, it's only going one direction. And I suppose any sense of kind of any sort of negative energy that I feel is, is probably a manifestation of the sense in me that my own attention span has diminished since, you know, with the rise of screens and all that sort of thing. And I've read statistics on how, you know, the average YouTube video 10 years ago was like 12 minutes long. Now it's like two Mm -hmm. minutes long. Yeah, but it's not going anywhere. So I guess the question is, how do we learn to use it in, in the most productive way? Yeah, I really think everything is just getting more efficient. Like, if you really think about non-trivial technology, pieces of technology that have changed the way humans work, everything from like cars to electricity to computers to, to the internet, at every step of, of, of the transformation, there were a group of people that, that looked at, at the new era and said, this is nonsense, like the old way is better. And historically, they've just been proven wrong. Like, there's no way you can make a justification for why cars are a bad thing in 2015 or why electricity is a bad thing. Similarly, in, in 10 or 100 years from now, there's no way you can say screens are going to be a bad thing. You're just on the wrong side of that battle. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's an interesting way of looking at it. You're absolutely right. So, so you talked a little bit before about how technology, how screens could potentially be harnessed to create a more engaging learning experience for yeah. kids. And I've, <laughs> and I've been reading a lot about gamification, which is just you know, an interesting concept that kept me hooked on Mario Kart and various computer games when I was a kid. Yeah. Where, where do you feel like we are currently with the, that sort of interface between technology, gamification, screens, and kids? I think it's just the beginning. From an educational perspective, obviously, like video games have been around for a while and kids love them. And especially with with all these new smaller screens with like phones and and tablets, kids have even more access to to play these things. But for for the educational context specifically, like the most people are still on using textbooks and paper worksheets just now. And like by now, I mean, like over the course of the last year, we're starting to see people use Google Docs to, to submit their essays and teachers grading them online and and having that like immediate feedback and people using things like Khan Academy to to not only learn concepts but also like do lessons after or or work work worksheets or problems afterwards to reinforce what they've learned the interesting thing is that when you have a paper worksheet it's it's a static piece of paper It, it doesn't change so if you get the very first problem wrong the difficulty of the worksheet is not going to change with your trajectory. Conversely, if, if you breeze through the first 20 problems, it probably indicates that, that you know the material and, and the worksheet isn't going to get harder. I think that there's a significant opportunity to essentially tune, like, like optimize the problems that these students are doing based on their level of understanding. And don't leave like the, the kids who don't understand concepts behind with stuff that's way over their head. And at the other end of the spectrum, don't under-challenge people who, who already get the information. Just essentially tailor the experience to fully match the student. What you're talking about here is actually how, you know, there's countless studies on, on flow states. And the famous chart or diagram is one that shows this perfect balance between the challenge of a task and the skill of the mm-hmm. participant. And when you have 
the challenge that just stretches the skill level by something like four yep. percent they say apparently so basically you have to be stretched slightly beyond your comfort zone and that is the place at which flow states or optimal performance takes place and Absolutely. below that if you're unchallenged you go into the land of apathy boredom i just don't give a shit about this stuff <laughs> which i'm sure you characterizes your entire school experience and right. on the other end of the extreme when it's too challenging you get that sense of frustration, disappointment, self-criticism, you know, yeah. um, both the, the bottom and the top, highly unproductive zones, right? That Absolutely. I, I, doubtless you see kids, so many kids, I'm sure that characterizes their school experience, either this sense of apathy and boredom or this sense of frustration. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is, is a system using technology to create an information feeding system, basically, or distribution system which has this inbuilt mechanism to be elastic. Absolutely. Like when you're on Mario Kart and you breeze through like the, the early levels because you're good, Mario Kart doesn't <laughs> stay there and force you to play those yeah. levels over and over again. Yeah. And it also doesn't put you on hard mode on, <laughs> on the very first time you hold the controller. Absolutely so not. I think we can learn a lot from that. Oh man, that's such an interesting way to look at it. This sort of stuff is going to revolutionize education, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you're going to have the smart kids are just going to be pushed and challenged and stretched. And the, the kids who, are, who struggle in certain areas, they'll also thrive. And what will be built into this mechanism, no doubt, is a way of recognizing the different types of intelligence that people have, you know, rather mm -hmm. than just this very, very kind of narrow definition of IQ. You'll have yeah. kids that are recognized for their emotional intelligence, their different types of creativity. And right. maybe at an earlier age, they'll begin to be steered into the areas into which they'll flourish. Because I remember when I was like, you know, I went through a very traditional schooling system. I learned, you know, vast swathes of stuff that I've never, ever used in my adult life. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, everybody has. Yeah, everybody has. Yeah. And I remember um, being forced into these areas of crossroads like at the age of 16 you have to choose what you're going to study when you're 17 and 18 and then at mm -hmm. the age of 18 you have to make this monumental decision about the direction that your life is going to take based on the degree that you choose to do and yeah. I remember just thinking holy shit like I've just learned a little bit about a whole bunch of stuff and now I'm supposed to make a decision that's going to alter the course of my life mm -hmm. but <laughs> potentially a better system would be for there to be this sort of gamified mechanism where the, right from the age of four or five years old, the clues are being given about what type of human I am, what type of brain I have, like what my, right. what my, how my DNA is manifested in the, in the way that I learn and what I have to give to the world. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. It's not just like a, a linear spectrum of low performers and high performers. There's so many axes by which you can measure performance. And yeah, I, I had to bring up the whole educational experience. I think it's it's so sad that you're forced to take these exams and, and you're, you're judged on, on these specific set of criteria for which the real world doesn't really care about those things. Like, you don't ever have to do manual long division ever, but you had to take out a car loan before. Yeah. And it's a shame that we don't learn about, like, real-life things in, 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 in school. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah, I really do envisage a future where it's just so radically different. We're, we're teaching our kids 
all the shit that we wish we knew when we we're 21 years old. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. wow, big topic there. Talk to me just briefly about how you tap into states of peak performance. Well, actually, let's go back a step. Like, what does peak performance mean to you? So I'm most familiar with it in, in a programming setting where I have this task and, and I have to write a program to solve it. And it basically means that the problem at hand or, or the program that I'm, I'm writing is very complex. There's lots of edge cases. There's lots of situations that I didn't expect that the program needs to, to have to solve. There's a lot of potential state that the program can be in and a lot of inputs. And it's a very complex mental model. And, and I think the flow state is one where the model is like the front and center of your brain and you see all aspects of it. And the resulting program that you write is really just like a, an extension of your mental state. It's like, I'm taking everything that's in my brain right now and, and just putting it in computer program form with no effort. Mm, so no effort. So that effortlessness is something that yeah. characterizes for you that state of flow? Yeah. So, so the ability to keep complex models in my, in my brain yeah. and then also the ability to translate those into, into code without having to consciously think about the steps like actually writing out stuff or how to translate my brain like thoughts and into actual lines like it, it should just it, it's just like an extension of my brain really interesting okay so so peak performance for you is tuning into this state where things kind of happen automatically from a subconscious level yeah it's almost like a removal of that clunky conscious system yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, interesting. That I mean, that, that is literally the definition of flow states. Like there's this awesome mm -hmm. term called transient hypofrontality, which actually <laughs> is the neuroscientific term for describing the shutdown of areas of the prefrontal cortex, which control okay. things like ego, time, all those kind of annoying things that keep you locked into that conscious mind, you know, which is helpful sometimes, but unhelpful sometimes. Yeah, so your sense of peak performance from a programming perspective is really like tuning into the flow state, literally. Yeah, which is absolutely. Epic. Wow. Mm -hmm. What do you do? How do you do it? Like for me, I use isolation music. As I said before, I take away the obstacles. What about you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good like EDM music, large cup of coffee, <laughs> and no interruptions, and and just me and in the computer. And it obviously it, it takes a little bit of time, but after it, it clicks, then, then I can just have extended periods of hours, sometimes several hours of, of just like mm. pure flow. Mm. Me too. Ain't it the best? It's very productive, isn't it? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Cool. Advice. Well, we're going to wrap up here and it's been really awesome to chat with you. We've covered a lot of topics, you know, talking about your, your childhood all the way through your Google experience to setting up this startup. What I'd like to do is get you back on the show in six months or a year's time because the trajectory your company is on is, is amazing. And it'd be so fascinating for people to tune into how things move in this tech space, like how quickly yeah. things change. Um, <laughs> so we'll definitely get you back on in six months' time if that's cool with you. That sounds great. Yeah, it's been an honor. I, I had a great time. Cool. So people can check out the work that you guys are doing. So it's goguardian.com. That's right. Awesome. All right, Advait, thanks for being on the show, and I'll chat with you soon. Thanks a lot, Gio. Cool. Take care. See ya. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Advait. He's a great guy. He's actually one of my coaching clients, and uh, together over the last few months, we've really been tuning into deeper levels of 
passion, purpose, and performance. And it's really exciting to see where Advite is taking GoGuardian. Please don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It means a lot to us. And you can check out the show notes on the website, flowstateperformance.com. And uh, tune in next time for another interesting chat with a peak performer. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.